The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced we for decades. We have asked everyone in Wales to make changes in the way we live our lives. Stay at home during this pandemic. Welcome to Journos in Lockdown. A podcast created by trainee broadcast journalists who are learning to report in a global pandemic. As we've not been able to go out and meet journalists, we've decided to bring them to you and ask them what challenges coronavirus has brought them and what the future of journalism might look like. Hello and welcome to another episode of Journals in Lockdown. I'm Gareth Axenderry and a couple of weeks ago I caught up with Simon Spungin from Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Simon edits Haaretz's English language edition and runs their weekly podcast. Israel's an incredibly complex country at the best of times, so it was eye-opening to hear his insight into what impact coronavirus has had in the region, as well as what it's like to be a journalist in one of the most complex countries on earth. Thanks for joining us, Simon. I know it's always a busy time in Israel, so it really is much appreciated. Just where in, exactly in Israel are you joining us from right now? I'm in a place called Holon, which is a, a, a suburb just south of Tel Aviv. Fantastic. And just to kick things off, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into journalism. What's brought you to, to the point in your career that you're at now? Uh, well, uh, first of all, I'm a pod- podcast host for Haaretz.com. I host Haaretz Weekly. I have done for the last year and a half. Uh, I'm also uh, in charge of what remains of uh, Haaretz's print edition. Uh, we publish a, an eight-page newspaper six times a week, which is published along with the, the New York Times International Edition here in Israel. Um, so I've, my journalistic career started uh, at Haaretz 22 years ago, and I've been there ever since. Uh, I started as a sports reporter slash editor slash translator, um, uh, translating short reports about the Israeli Football League, um, writing features about local sports. Um, I graduated to night editor on the um, English newspaper. Um, and a few years later on the Hebrew newspaper, I've been managing editor, editor of the Haaretz.com website. Uh, and, and as I say, I'm now uh, uh, mainly hosting the podcast and looking after what remains of the print edition. And people may pick or detect your accent. You were, you were born in, in the UK, correct? That's right. I was born in Newcastle um, and I came to Israel to study in, uh, when I was 18, straight after A-levels. Um, came to study at the Hebrew University, which has an amazing campus overlooking, you know, one of the most spectacular cities in the world. Um, And stayed here, uh, been here ever since. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, miss Newcastle, miss the football, but what can you do? For those who may not be overly au fait with Israel and the Middle East, um, talk mm. us briefly through Haaretz as a publication and where you sit in Israel's media landscape. Uh, Haaretz is, in, is Israel's oldest uh, daily newspaper. Uh, last year we celebrated the centenary, uh, so 1919 was the first edition. Uh, it was founded by German immigrants uh, to what was then Palestine. Um, and has always been a broadly liberal newspaper um, that has taken on various forms over the years. Uh, It's adapted its liberal worldview to what's been happening in the region. So uh, before the establishment of the State of Israel, uh, it was um, 
very much a Zionist newspaper. It, uh, it wanted to see the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine alongside a Palestinian state. That obviously remains the case today, but the complications of the last 70 years have meant complications in the liberal view that Haaretz takes. Haaretz is anti-occupation, pro-peace. Uh, some of its writers advocate a two-state solution uh, in which Palestine exists alongside Israel. Some of its writers uh, advocate a one-state solution in which the whole of the land between the river, the Jordan River and the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, is divided, is, is shared equally between all of its inhabitants, uh, Jewish, Arab, Christian, whatever. Uh, so Haaretz finds itself uh, to the left of the uh, political spectrum in Israel. Some would say to the far left. Uh, in the populist press uh, and amongst far-right politicians, it's uh, described as anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, uh, self-hating, um, which in some cases we see as a badge of honor. Um, there is a lot to be critical of the state of Israel about, and certainly this current government, which uh, uh, some of your listeners may know has just received a fresh mandate for another three, four, or five years. Uh, so Haaretz is very critical. A lot of its writers are vilified. Um, when I tell people that I work for Haaretz, there's one of two reactions. The first one is what, the, that newspaper still exists? Because in a landscape where Prime Minister Netanyahu controls the, the narrative, it's hard to imagine a dissenting voice. Uh, and the other reaction is, oh, you must hate Israel. Go to Gaza, which, you know, we, we hear a lot. Um, so, yeah, uh, either on the liberal left, the far left, uh, depending on your worldview. I visited Israel and Palestine last year for a brief period of just over a week or so. Mm. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, obviously, it's political, cultural, religious complexities. And I remember I just visited Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Western Wall in Jerusalem. I was standing sort of in the center of Jerusalem, um, waiting for falafel, I think. Um, and I remember just thinking, how on earth would you report daily from a country like this with all its complexities? Um, in the UK, you know, with Brexit and, and different things, sometimes I think we get caught up in thinking that, that we're um, an incredibly complex country, whereas, whereas I think Israel kind of takes that to another level. Just what is it like being a journalist in Israel? Well, there's two types of journalism in, in Israel. And I'm sure that's true of every country, but more so perhaps of Israel. There's domestic journalism for domestic consumption, and there's international journalism for, uh, for, for global consumption. Uh, domestic journalism is uh, the same as everywhere. Um, you know, the, um, the stories um, are, are local, uh, some would say parochial. Um, what interests uh, people in Israel, uh, the average person in Israel, is exactly the same as would interest the average person in the UK or the States, um, especially now at a time of, uh, of coronavirus. You know, everybody wants to read about, uh, about COVID-19. Uh, it is true that reporting on Israel in English is extremely complicated. Um, the scrutiny that you're under, um, not only domestically but, in, but internationally, uh, means that you're walking on eggshells all the time. Um, and even the most basic example, um, 
let's say that a, a, a Palestinian um, stabs a Jewish settler in the West Bank um, um, and we have to report it. Obviously, we have to report it. Is that a terror attack? That's a rhetorical question, obviously, but it's a question that we have to ask ourselves on a daily basis. Um, the word terror has a lot of emotional baggage, but it also has a, a very strict definition. So we have to walk a very fine line between emotional language uh, when we're reporting such incidents, um, and we get criticized for, for refraining from calling a terror attack such when um, it, it's an attack against a soldier, which by any definition is not a terror attack. Um, so it, that complicates the issue. Um, we are, there is a, an online organization called the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting, CAMERA, which uh, dedicates itself to finding uh, mistakes, inaccuracies, um, and uh, what it calls misleading reporting in uh, English language uh, coverage of Israel. Um, so uh, they scour our pages and our website on a daily basis looking for incidents or, or uh, events that they can say, you should have called this a terror attack or uh, any other of the emotive words that, uh, that, that we try and refrain from using. Um, uh, likewise, um, if, uh, if we refer to uh, events before 1948 in this region as pre-state Israel, we get slammed by the left-wing media uh, for, for, for ignoring the fact that it was Palestine before that or, or whatever, you know, you, it, it, it's, uh, it's a, uh, an unfortunate metaphor, but it's a minefield. I was doing some reading before, before, um, before coming on, on here this morning from Reporters Without Borders and their World Press Freedom Index, which, which ranks Israel kind of sort of middle of the, the league table globally. Um, it celebrates the fact that, that Israel does kind of foster an ability for, you know, to, as a democracy to, to have free speech. But one of their big concerns is the, the need for self-censorship. You alluded to there about some of the pressures that, that come in from different agencies, different organizations. How much of a concern is firstly self-censorship, but then also safety for journalists in Israel? The only censorship that we uh, are subject to is military censorship. Um, legally, we wouldn't be allowed to operate in Israel if we didn't agree to um, submit anything that we consider uh, or that we suspect the military censor might consider sensitive for approval uh, beforehand. Um, in terms of self-censorship, uh, anybody who's read um, anything by Gidon Levy, Amira Haas, or any of our more outspoken readers will know that we, um, we don't uh, self-censor in any way. Um, uh, and the same goes for uh, opposing views. Um, uh, our paper is filled with uh, views from the right, um, uh, which the vast majority of our readers and writers disagree with, but for, for, for balance and for a better perspective, uh, we offer them that. So there's no self-censorship. The, the only censorship is military censorship. In terms of safety, um, 
there are flare-ups in violence. Um, they are cyclical. Uh, they appear to be inevitable for the time being. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, Israel is no more dangerous for a, for a reporter than anywhere else. Um, certainly reporters who, who, who don't venture into the West Bank, which is the, the vast majority, uh, even those who do um, are um, uh, relatively secure. There are uh, very few uh, incidents these days, um, especially, uh, again, at the time of Corona. You know. So personal safety is not high up on the uh, on the list of concerns for uh, Israeli journalists. Um, freedom of the press is increasingly so. Um, Netanyahu, like uh, many of his populist um, friends across the world, from Hungary to Brazil to uh, to the White House, uh, don't like being criticised. Um, just today we had Trump. Uh, clamping down on social media in the States. Uh, Israeli journalists and, and, and analysts are concerned about the direction that uh, Netanyahu is taking. There are certain laws in place that, uh, that could be used to uh, impinge on the freedom of speech if uh, the, the government was so inclined. Uh, there is also a concern over the uh, corruption charges uh, against Netanyahu, uh, which involve uh, media manipulation and exchanging favorable coverage for um, legislation that would benefit the owners of certain media outlets and, and Netanyahu's trial started a week ago. Um, I think that was the reason that Israel lost uh, several places in the, in the press freedom index, um, specifically because of the corruption charges against Netanyahu and what that could mean for the media industry. On that point of kind of coverage and stuff, obviously, like you said, you 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 um, are in charge of um, the newspaper's weekly podcast. Mm. Um, I'm a massive fan of podcasts. Obviously, the fact that we're here speaking on a podcast suggests that. Um, how have kind of podcasts taken off in Israel, and how how do you how do you feel that they're used to to really tell the news um, and and to be able to really inform people as this new medium that's kind of um, sprung to life in very recent years. Mm. Again, there is a, it, it's slightly um, schizophrenic, the, the, the podcast scene in Israel, um, because there is the Hebrew language podcast scene, which is hermetically sealed amongst uh, no more than 10 million Hebrew speakers in the world. So, you know, if, if you get 10 people listening, you've got a fair chunk of the audience already. Um, Haaretz has about half a dozen Hebrew language uh, podcasts, um, which are well received, uh, well liked, and, 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 and get thousands of listeners on, you know, uh, sport, politics, uh, culture, uh, uh, and so on. Um, there are, again, several very good English language uh, podcasts coming out of Israel. Um, and um, you know they're they're easy to find on whatever podcast uh, platform you listen to, listener. So check check them out, including Haaretz Weekly. Um, there's also uh, the TLV has a great one. I can recommend that. Um, the uh, Israelis consume news and media in the same way as everybody else. Um, you know. Um, the vast majority of my listeners I know are overseas, um, in, in the States, in the UK, but uh, as far uh, uh, 
from you know Qatar to uh, to to Q and Kuwait to to New Zealand and uh, and China, uh, which is it's very gratifying to see such a global audience, um, and 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 podcasts make that possible. There's a million things that we could talk about um, on Israel and 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 journalists' role in Israel. We could we could spend all year and and probably all decade talking about them. I want to move on to something though that's kind of developed really quickly and that everybody, like you said, is talking about the moment, which is coronavirus. Yeah. Israel acted quite quickly and and early to enforce a lockdown, um, and you very much started to lift those restrictions. Many of those restrictions now. What's the current situation with the virus in Israel, and how do you feel that that you've You've coped as a country with it. Um, if we'd been speaking yesterday, I would have been uh, a lot more optimistic. Um, overnight, there was uh, a spike, um, something like 60 new cases in 24 hours, um, which has followed a, gen- a gradual easing of the lockdown over the past week. Um, restaurants are open, bars are open, shopping malls are open. Um, Let's hope that it's a, a small and, and containable spike. Um, it, it's actually ironic that Israel um, managed to, to contain the, uh, the, the, the spread so quickly um, because it only happened because of an election. Um, Netanyahu was up for an election. He was pressuring his, uh, his coalition, his would-be coalition partner, to, to, to go into government with him to save him having to, uh, to, to face a fourth election in a year and a half. Um, and for the sake of, uh, of the corona, for the national emergency, um, uh, everyone agreed, uh, put their political differences behind them and, and allowed the country to go into to lockdown, uh, full lockdown for a month. Um, which seems to have uh, flattened the curve. That is just a, a single snapshot there, just of how complex the interrelation is, I guess, between um, civic, societal affairs and, and politics in Israel. Absolutely. In and that's, of... before, that's before we even mentioned the Palestinian territories, which are Gaza and the West Bank, which ironically have enjoyed the benefits of being so isolated. Um, you know, um, reports of, of um, three deaths in, in, in the West Bank, um, I think fewer than that in Gaza and even fewer cases precisely because it's so hermetically sealed um, and um, uh, which in, in normal times is a, and remains a terrible thing and something that must be uh, fought against but uh, in, in terms of fighting COVID it was it was a godsend. That's a really interesting point there about how you know like you said how the fact that they're hermetically sealed and so isolated has has probably benefited them um, in terms of relations between say the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank um, potentially Hamas in Gaza and the Israeli government in terms of aid or in terms of cooperation purely on coronavirus have you seen kind of a, a lightening of, of relations there Absolutely. There was very close coordination between the, the, the civil authority, which is the Israeli military branch that uh, runs the West Bank, the Israeli presence in the West Bank, and the Palestinian Authority uh, on, on uh, health um, and, uh, and, and civic affairs, uh, even as at the same time uh, the, the Palestinian Authority's political wing was severing ties with Israel over plans to annex the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. So these things coexist somehow uh, in this crazy reality of, of, of of politics and uh, and poxes and how is uh, obviously with a with a lockdown and and restriction of movement 
How has coronavirus impacted the job of a journalist in Israel? Is it, is it similar to, to sort of, I guess, journalists in every country having to deal with lockdown? Or is there any sort of um, specific nuances in, in Israel? I, I, I imagine it would be the same for everyone everywhere. Um, journalists are, are described as a, a, an essential industry. Um, so people who are reporting uh, on events that happen outside of their homes have uh, permission to be outside. Um, I don't know of anybody who refused to do so. On the, on the contrary, you know, when uh, you can always spot a journalist at a disaster because he's the one running towards the flames. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, people are, are happy to be uh, to be to be working, um, especially when colleagues across the industry are being furloughed and and, and don't have a um, a, a, a very rosy future at the moment. Um, in terms of the newsroom, we three months ago we had our first contingency meeting for how we would deal with uh, a potential lockdown. Um, within a day, everybody was hooked up to the uh, editorial system from home, um, and, uh, and and our desk went from 20 people at a given moment to two people. Um, and I don't think any of our readers or listeners noticed any difference. Um, on the contrary, I think we've put out more content over the last three months uh, than on average than, than we do in, in normal times. Moving away from coronavirus now, I want to touch upon kind of like you yes, said, please. Being, yeah, absolutely. I think everybody takes a massive sigh of relief when, when, when we even mention it. Um, moving away, like I said, from coronavirus, I want to touch upon English language and, and global um, coverage of Israel and, and, mm. and Palestine and the Middle East in general, really. Um, it seems to be kind of sometimes a, a political minefield covering some of the issues um, in the Middle East, but specifically in, in Israel and Palestine. In the UK, we've seen a rise in reports, you know, of, of, of anti-Semitism over the last couple of years. And many of those criticisms have centered around the Labour Party um, and their criticism of, of the Israeli government. Mm-hmm. What sort of advice would you have for, for um, English language journalists not operating on the ground in Israel, potentially, um, and people in general, in terms of being able to distinguish the difference between criticism of, of the Israeli government and its institutions um, and what is just, you know, flat out anti-Semitism? Mm, OK, um, look, obviously, this is a huge issue. Now. This is this um, but potentially is the defining issue for the Jewish people of the 21st century. Um, I, let me start by saying that I speak as a, uh, as a Jew, as a Zionist, um, as a socialist, um, as a liberal. Um, the, the line that you have to ask yourself of whether you're crossing is this. Are you denying the Jewish people's right to a homeland in your criticism of the government of Israel? It's one thing to criticize the policies of the government of Israel, including and perhaps especially the occupation, which is a humanitarian disaster. Um, It's another to say that Palestine from the river to the sea shall be free, because that implies the eradication of a Jewish presence political, cultural, religious, in the historical Jewish homeland. The moment that you deny the Jewish people the right to a homeland in whatever we want to call this tiny sliver of land, you are being anti-Semitic, in my opinion. 
I think that the Jewish people are, are a nation that deserve a homeland, just like the Palestinians, just like the Kurds, just like the Tibetans, just like the Welsh, just like the Scots, just like the Navajo Indians, just like any other self-identifying nation. Having said that, and this is where it gets complicated for a Jewish, Zionist, socialist, liberal person like myself, the Israeli government has weaponized anti-Semitism not just the Jewish government, the Jewish establishment um, in places like the UK, um, most specifically, I think the, um, uh, certain political elements within the UK have hijacked anti-Semitism. Um, that's certainly the case uh, with the Netanyahu government um, that cries anti-Semitism at any uh, criticism of its policies. A lot of these cases are anti-Semitic, but not all of them. And when they blur the lines, they make it a lot more difficult to point out the true anti-Semitism rather than just tarring any criticism of the government and of Israel with that very broad brush. And that is a dangerous path to go down. Um, clearly, uh, a lot of um, anti-Zionists are all also anti-Semites. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Uh, the same with the, uh, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. I, do not, I personally do not believe that that movement itself is anti-Semitic because it does not call for the destruction or the eradication of the Jewish state. Others might argue with me, and that's a very legitimate and very topical argument. Um, I'm more concerned about the weaponization of anti-Semitism uh, by politicians uh, shameless politicians who are only seeking to defend themselves and protect themselves from their own crimes uh, and, and from the crimes that they allowed their country uh, to commit. Um, again, I, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> do you think there's internationally, do you think sometimes there's a, like you said, scrutiny and, and, and you personally and, and, and Haaretz welcome mm. scrutiny of, of, his, of, of the Israeli government and, and kind of self-scrutiny of the Israeli government. Do you think though that internationally sometimes there's maybe too much focus on some of the things that, that the Israeli government, a, a democratically elected government at the end of the day um, are doing, whilst there are you know, um, humanitarian atrocities being carried out in other parts of the world. Um, for example, the, the, the Uyghur Muslims in, in, in China um, that are going unseen. Do you think there's an unnecessary focus on, on Israel sometimes um, that's disproportionate? I think that certainly criticism and focus on Israel is inflated and inflamed by anti-Semites. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, the danger is that that um, artificial inflammation uh, might mask the a very real concern amongst not only non-Israelis and non-Jews, but amongst Israelis and Israeli Jews uh, who are working uh, internally very hard to try and change the situation. Um, I think that there is a, a certain um, fashion to, uh, to Israel bashing, for sure. I think it's the, uh, Israel is the bete noir of the, uh, of the, the liberal left, for sure. Um, when I was in my teens, it was, it was South Africa. Um, and, um, and 
that, that achieved results. So who knows, maybe similar pressure on Israel would achieve the results that, that people like me are fighting for internally. Um, uh, I, I welcome uh, scrutiny uh, of Israel, um, as long as it doesn't cross the line, and as long as it remembers that there are people in Israel uh, who, who think like them, um, and oppose what the government is doing, and, and uh, we're not one voice. There are obviously some pretty big issues facing the region. Um, you know, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu, his corruption trial, further annexation potentially of the West Bank, Gaza's ongoing blockade, and, and you know, especially the US administration's efforts to broker this kind of cent- um, peace deal of the century. For somebody wanting to stay in the, the loop with, with Israel moving forward, what would you tell them to look out for in terms of issues coming down the road? Um, there are so many, like you said, that we could talk about for hours, days, weeks. What are some of the things you'd, you'd tell somebody to focus on? Uh, well, beyond the potential sale of Newcastle United to Saudi Arabia, <laughs> which is occupying a lot of my time at the moment, um, uh, opinions are divided uh, uh, over annexation. Um, some of uh, uh, the, the commentators here are saying um, Netanyahu won't go ahead with it. It's uh, another one of his ploys, just a, a, a red herring to, to take attention away from everything else that's going on, specifically his trial, as you mentioned. Um, other commentators say that it depends on Donald Trump um, and that if he finds himself trailing in the polls ahead of the November presidential election, he could encourage Netanyahu to impose Jewish stroke Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank, which he would then sell to his evangelical supporters as another of the great Trump moves towards uh, the end of days, bringing the, the second coming of the Messiah, hallelujah. Um, others think that it'll go ahead irrespective and that Israel will impose sovereignty without giving the Palestinian residents there uh, um, any voting rights, any civil rights, and it's another step towards uh, an apartheid state. Um, so certainly annexation is on the menu, is on the agenda for the, uh, for the coming months. Um, Netanyahu's trial itself is, will be on the back burner. Um, it now goes into the, uh, uh, the, the, the lawyers wrangling over what is admissible as evidence and, and there'll probably no, be no more big headlines uh, coming out uh, of that. Um, so we're, we're back to the, uh, the coronavirus routine here, um, hopefully avoiding a, a, a spike, uh, a second wave, um, and, um, and, and following what's going on uh, in the West Bank and, and elsewhere in the region. We, Iran is never far off uh, our radar here. Um, mm-hmm. Libya too, there were uh, reports just this week of, of Russia sending fighter jets to Libya, which is on our back doorstep too. So, you know, it, it, always uh, something going on in this neck of the woods. As a journalist who, a final question really, as a mm. journalist who um, produ- produces news or coverage from within Israel to a, to a global audience and to, to an international audience, like you said, many of your English language podcast listeners come from outside of Israel. Um, for a prospective journalist who may have a particular interest in reporting internationally, reporting even the Middle East, what advice would you give them? Um, immerse yourselves as much as possible. Um, 
uh, spend as much time um, in being in the place that you want to report on, asking questions, speaking to the locals. Um, ideally, if you can go somewhere where you know the language or you can learn the language, you know that, uh, that language gives you such an amazing insight into the into the culture and politics and, and thought process and what makes a country tick. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's uh, it, it, it absolutely opens up uh, new doors. Find somebody who can who can accompany you and and, and translate all of those nuances uh, that, that you would hear. And, and most of all, be curious. Uh, ask a lot of questions. Just keep on asking questions. That that's the most important thing. Simon, it's been fantastic speaking to you. It's, it's been something that I've wanted to do since I was in the region last year is to, to speak to some, some journalists who, who have actually had experience of, of working um, in what's an incredibly complex and fascinating country. Once again, I just want to thank you because I think the insight's been fantastic and, and I'm sure that people listening um, will certainly get a lot from it. It's been an absolute pleasure, Gareth, and your listeners are, are, are welcome to check us out, Harrods Weekly. We have a, a great episode coming up on Sunday about discovery of use of cannabis at the High Temple in Arad. That's, uh, wow. that's going to be a great episode. You're more than welcome to join us uh, uh, on, on Sunday. Sounds really good. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. A pleasure, Gareth. Thank you. A massive thanks again to Simon for joining us this week. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, we're at Journals in Lockdown, and look out for our next episode where Anthony has a chat with BBC Five Live's Mark Hutchings.